This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. I'm Jim Mohart. Today our scripture reading will be from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, which can be found on page 809 in the Pew Bibles. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, let me say welcome again. I'm glad you are with us. Uh, today's kind of a fun day, so maybe you feel new. Um, I feel new. Today's my three-month anniversary. I don't even know what that means. There's no, like, uh, I don't know if that's silver or gold or diamonds or what you get for a three-month anniversary, but, um, man, it's been a blast for us to be here, and it's, I didn't time it like this, but it's fascinating for me on this day that we get to this section of Scripture, and so um, let me just kind of share with you my heart a little bit. As I began to pray about coming to Leewood Baptist Church, um, people asked me, like, how would you get started? What would you do? And uh, do you focus on what needs to change? Do you focus on what's already there and some of the strengths that are there? Do you focus on reaching new people? Do you focus on people that need your care and you focus on shut-ins? Do you focus on leaders? And who do you focus on? What do you do? And uh, it's a great question. It's a really important question. And it's not like one little answer. But the way I try to answer that in my own heart and out loud to people is to say my focus will be to reintroduce some and remind others of who Jesus is and what it means to be loved by him. I think the best thing I can do as I come into a new context is just to start by reminding people who already know Jesus and those who don't yet know him to introduce them to his love, to tell them what he's like and hold him up and say he's really beautiful, he's what you need, more than we need new programs and more than we need to keep things exactly the same, more than we need new strategies or we need to get back to the way things used to be in the glory days. What we most need is to see who Jesus is and and what he's like. And I think the best way to do that is just to kind of walk through passages of Scripture. And so the Gospels give us a great framework. So I thought, man, if we could take the book of Matthew, happens to also line up with Christmas, right? I started in December, so that's a pretty easy deal. So we hit the birth narrative. Brilliant as we started that thing out, right? So we get to do baby Jesus as we're introducing who Jesus is. And we've been walking through the last couple of chapters. It really has been my goal is to teach you and show you and hold up for you who Jesus is and what he's like. And help us like fall back in love with him or fall in love with him for the very first time. And I think that's what the church should always be about. And as that happens, some other things also happen. So what we've also learned as we've held up Jesus is we've looked at, sometimes we've held up other things in our life. There's other kinds of loves. There's a competing love in our hearts. So we talked a lot about repentance. And so a natural 
talking about who Jesus is has us shift a little bit and say, well, what if we've looked at something else to save us, to be beautiful for us, to rescue us? How would we turn back towards God? And, and actually, Matthew has given us a lot of opportunity to do that, to, to talk about repentance, right? So, so we talk about who Jesus is and what he's like, and then we turn away from things that are competing loves. But you don't just turn away from something, you turn back to something. And so the Gospels also give us a framework or an instruction or a vision for what it means to follow after God, what it would mean to turn away from loving something else. And if we actually loved him, then what does that look like inside our hearts? And so you have this kind of gospel, beautiful exhortation of who Jesus is, turning away from what is not that, what what you've loved differently, and then turning towards something. So, So at the early days in November when I was having conversations with the church about coming, I said transformation happens really when those three things are at place, when the gospel is central and we hear who Jesus is, what he did for us, how he died for us to set us free, and then we actually turn away from the things of the flesh is the language of the Bible. We, we repent from things that we've done as competing loves, and then we turn back to him and walk by the Spirit. And I think you need all three of those. If you just talk about how beautiful Jesus is, but never show people what it means to follow him or where they have competing loves, I think it can feel kind of naive. If you just talk about stuff that we have to repent of and where we've been bad, it can actually get us into this really shame, depressed state. And if we just talk about what God wants us to do and all the commands and the, the blessed life, it can actually feel a little bit like um, syrupy. Or it doesn't have teeth because it doesn't acknowledge the brokenness. And so it can like set us up to fail because it just puts a plastic veneer, even though it's the beautiful words of God, a plastic veneer over what is sometimes a dark heart. And so you have like manipulation that happens and you have religious versions of manipulation. And so I think transformation happens when the gospel is central and you call people to turn away from the things of the flesh, competing gospels, competing versions of good news, so to speak. And then you turn towards Something, And that actually is the center of what our church is trying to do is we think about proclaiming hope and pursuing transformation. It's in those three buckets, and you need all three of those together. And so the Sermon on the Mount actually brings us into that third bucket, that what does it look like to actually follow Jesus? What is the vision for someone who loves God? What does it mean for us to give our hearts over to God? And if we're turning away from the ways of the world, like what do we turn to? So the Sermon on the Mount is this beautiful, condensed, tight, potent sermon that Jesus preached to followers that were coming asking, what does it mean to be in the kingdom? And so since I started, I've longed for us to get into these verses so that we could begin to talk about what does it mean to actually follow Jesus in the day-to-day places of your life? If you were just to flip over a little bit, maybe have your Bible there in front of you or find your phone, you can, you can thumb a little bit. You'll see things like, Issues with lust and anger and relationships and retaliation and what to do with your money and how do you pray and what do you do with anxiety and what do you do with people that hate you or that you hate and what do you do with this idea of like judging other people and what does God want for us in kind of the golden rule and how does we actually follow him in a way that produces fruit, right? There's a lot in these three chapters and full disclosure, I hope we're here for several months actually. I want us to feel the freedom as we hit a topic like anxiety to not just blow through it fast, but to just stop and slow down and go, hey, and what else does the Bible say about anxiety? Because we're dealing with anxiety. What else does the Bible say about lust and sexuality? Because we're, we're dealing with lust and sexuality. What else does the Bible say about money? So these will be kind of windows into some teachings for us of the ethics of Christianity, what it means to actually follow God. And I give you this long introduction because if you just start with the ethics, I think you can put a law on people that will crush them. 
And in fact, some people have taken the Sermon on the Mount out of this context of Matthew, and they've done just that. They've they've seen in these words like a litmus test for the good people, or they've made it the entrance into the kingdom. If you can follow all of these things perfectly, that's how you get into the kingdom, or it's what you do to qualify yourself to be loved. Some people actually say there's no way, it's just too high, it's too lofty, so this must be like a a heavenly description of another life. This is actually for for the millennial kingdom, some have taught it that way. But I think rooting it in context, what we see in Jesus' words, who says he came to save and tells us to repent and actually tells us he's, he's the one who actually came to satisfy our deepest longings, to put it in that space helps us encounter his words, I think, in the context that we need to hear them in as part of transformation. So it'll kill us if we just say, man, if we obey the Beatitudes, then God would love us. But it would also kill us if we said, just trust Jesus and do whatever you want. That also is a different kind of damage to our hearts. So we need to see God for who he is. We need to turn away from things that we've had as competing loves and then turn to what he teaches us. And so I'm really excited to step into these passages. And again, we'll be here for months. So a couple other things, like it's kind of intimidating to preach the most famous sermon ever in history by the most famous person ever in history. I mean, you talk about like a challenging task. You thought like replacing your old boss or kind of stepping into a new role at work was challenging. Try preaching the best sermon ever and stretching it out for a little while and trying to explain what actually needs very little explanation. So that's kind of challenging. What's also challenging is there's actually lots of interpretations of how do you engage this. I named a couple of those. Is this a a law that we must keep to be loved? Is it the description of the people that God loves? Is, Is it a future thing for us? Like, how do we engage? Is it just like a social blueprint for us that we should aspire to in our governments and in our relationships? Like, how do we engage this? And so with that in mind, it's fascinating for me to think about really, really smart people that disagree with each other and try to like hold up for you what I think we need from this text. But I'm going to do my best in that space. But I want to just acknowledge there are lots of different views of this, and I don't know how you think about that. Sometimes it kind of messes with us a little bit when we think about scholars who disagree about really important things. Here's the good news. No one is disagreeing about like who Jesus is and what he says as, as far as a Christian scholar in that space. So the gospel is not ambiguous about what we need to be saved. But there are some things that people maybe believe ahead of time that shape how they come to a text like this. And so if you believe that you earn your righteousness through good behavior, well, then you can see how you would read this through that lens. Or if you think, man, there's no way we could ever please God, there's nothing we could ever do, this is just to crush us like the law in the Old Testament, then you would read it that way. If you thought this is for another people in another time, another era, you would read it that way. And so there's different ways that we come to the text that actually shape how we engage it. So I prayed for that this week, and I thought about the way wine tasting works. I don't know if you guys are wine people. I'm not like a wine person. My favorite color is gray. Like I'm really just vanilla and flat. So I can say like, yes, I like that, or no, I don't like that. I always lose at the game of like... What are the notes that we have in that? But one time, Ada and I took a wine tasting class. Just a fun double date with a friend. And so we sat down on these stools for a while, and we tasted about eight different wines, some whites and some reds. And we had a, an expert there with us kind of walking us through this. And we had a couple of crackers and some cheese. And so we'd have us, like, taste something and then eat a piece of cheese and then taste it again and taste the differences. And it was kind of this interesting experience where I realized there is, like, a science to wine. Like, there's something in the bottle, right? You could, like 
You could look at it under a microscope. You could say what's in there. You could call the ingredients. You could give the alcohol content. There's like a scientific thing inside the wine. There's also a very subjective experience of drinking wine. So the guy would ask, like, so what do you taste? What, what's in that? And, and it was amazing to hear people say, like, oh, it tastes like raw meat. I was like, gross. That's disgusting. Or they was, oh, oh, I taste, one guy's like, I, I taste like tires. And I thought, are we drinking the same thing? And one dude was like, this is like pencil shavings. And they would do cherries and nuts and things like that too. But I was like, these are bizarre ingredients. They, of course, there weren't ingredients in the wine. They weren't saying the wine has tires in it. They were saying, when I take this in, I experience this. I thought about that a little bit of like, all right, what is like inside of us that helps us or keeps us or sets us up to encounter text of scripture? Like, what are you pairing it with in your heart that shapes how you encounter it? Right? So, so when you eat a piece of cheese, you realize the subjective nature actually has some science behind it, right? The lipids in that cheese change how you encounter that wine. And kids, if you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, think about the way like when you have soda and then you have popcorn, they go amazing together. And then you throw like some M&Ms or some chocolate in that. So if you have popcorn and chocolate, it changes how you taste both of those, right? The salty and the sweet as you pair them, so to speak. It's a kid's pairing. As you pair those, it changes how you experience it and how you taste it. Okay, I tell you all of that because I think that we are what gets paired with the Sermon on the Mount. It's like what happens inside your heart? What are you bringing to the text? And not like subjectively, but like where are you really? So when you hear things like blessed are the poor in spirit, if you feel poor in spirit, you encounter that phrase very differently than if you're trying your hardest to deny there's any places of poverty in your life emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally. Right? If you're in denial of what's going on inside your heart, you read this text maybe as a confrontation or as a challenge or, or something to be pitied. But if you're in a season where you're like, man, I am being crushed, then you hear this text in a way that actually you encounter somewhat differently. I don't think that fully explains all the different scholarly approaches. Again, there's really, really smart people, and I get a chance throughout the week to like dialogue with them through books and sermons. And so this is one of those spaces where there are really, really bright people that have very different understandings, or maybe we would say it this way, like nuanced understandings, because I think there's something in all of their approaches that's helpful for us. Right? There, there is a crushing nature to this to realize we can't please God on our own so that we'll trust him. There is a description of the kingdom so that we long for it. There is a sense in which we'll never fully have this in this life, so we, we long for something more. There is a sense in which if our society lived by some of these principles and values, it would change things in a real positive way. So there's, there's elements in all of those views. But I think to take this, ta- this sermon in context is to hear Jesus explaining what it means when he says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do we live in a kingdom of heaven that is at hand? What does it actually look like? What does it mean for us to be in that space? And I think if we'll let Jesus' context of the sermon of when he drops it shape how we interpret it, I think it will really help us over the next couple of months. So go with me real quick to chapter 4 of Matthew. We've been kind of hovering around this text for a little while. Look with me in verse 23 of Matthew Four. He says this, and when he went throughout Galilee, this is right after he's called his disciples to come follow him, be fishers of men, which we focused on last week, this call to evangelism and to share the relationship of God with other people. He says, we went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all of their sick and those afflicted with very diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So here's the explanation of the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Come follow me and let's talk about the kingdom. And now he demonstrates the power and the ethics and the beauty and the reversal of the kingdom of God. He's coming to the sick to make them well. He's coming to the diseased to heal them. He's coming to the demon oppressed to actually liberate and set them free. And great crowds, it says in verse 25, began to follow him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So people are hearing what he's saying, and they're watching what he's doing, and they're beginning to gather. So now Jesus, it says in verse 1, sits them down, and he begins to teach them. And Matthew has labored a lot of times, and we've looked at this several places, to show us how Jesus fits in the line of the Old Testament prophets. He has a genealogy that ties him to Abraham and to David. Right? So he is the true Israel. He is the truer and better king. There's a ton of parallels to his birth story and Moses' birth story. And you have a ton of parallels to the 40 years in the wilderness and the 40 days of temptation. And so now Jesus comes out of that temptation, and he goes to a mountain to begin to teach The same way Moses delivered the people across the Red Sea and then went to the Mount Sinai and began to teach. This is what it means to be the people of God. So Matthew is laboring to show us the parallels that Jesus is coming to explain to us who God is, what he's like, and what it means to follow him. So there's lots that we could talk about. I want to say two things from this, and we're going to actually spend two weeks in this text. Here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about who the kingdom of God is for and then what the kingdom of God does in us. All right, so who the kingdom of God is for is where we'll focus this week. And then what the kingdom of God produces in us. Like what effect does it have? How does it change us? I think that's where we'll spend our time next week. But first I want to talk about what does it mean to actually hear the invitation of the kingdom? Who is the kingdom of God for? Which I think is why Jesus opens up this way. So really, we'll just look at two points. One is, what does this word blessed actually mean? And then what is the description of those who are blessed? That'll be how we walk through who is the kingdom of God for. So let me just ask you before we jump into that, when you stop and think about what is the blessed life? What what is like the good life? What are you longing for? What do you keep saying, man, if I just had Blank. Either I would have made it, or I would have avoided it, or I would have accomplished it. What is it with your job, with your relationships, with your body? Like, what do you keep saying, I need to be more like this? Or what are you trying to protect and hold on to? Because if you lost it, it would say something about you that you don't want to have said about you. What is your view of the good life? Who, who is actually blessed? You feel it. Would you take a moment just to kind of articulate it? And maybe it's this web of things. Just say it to yourself in your mind. Like, what, what am I living for? And then think about where you spend your money, where you spend your time, what you are anxious about. I think those are windows into what we long for, what we love, what we're trying to hold on to, what we think we need to be safe and secure. I think those get us at the version of the good life, either that we have to get or that we already have and we're trying to hold on to, right? It comes at us both ways. So, so who do you think or what do you think is the blessed life? Right, well, Jesus gives a picture of it that I bet is a little bit different than the list you just had in your heart. 
Right? Well, normally when we think about it, they're not always like bad, evil things. We're not talking about really destructive things sometimes. Sometimes they're actually really good and beautiful things. But Jesus says the people that are really blessed, they're the ones who are poor in spirit. Verse 3, verse 4, they're the ones who mourn. They're the ones who are meek. They're the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are really blessed, they're the ones who are merciful, he says in verse 7. Those that are really blessed are are pure in heart. Those that are really blessed are peacemakers. And those that are really blessed are actually persecuted for righteousness' sake. And, And when people say things about them because they follow Jesus, ah, that is when they are really blessed. Okay, you should struggle with that. You shouldn't go, yep, totally, that's how I grew up, that's how I was raised, that's my values, that's what my parents taught me. Like, this is provocative on purpose, which makes sense, right? The greatest preacher ever, preachers are trained to do something provocative at the beginning to get your attention. I'm going to tell you this heart-wrenching story, this really hilarious joke, and right when you're laughing, I'm going to go, ha-ha, see, it's you, and you go, oh my gosh, like, that's, preachers are trained to do that, right? So for Jesus to give a provocative opening to the greatest sermon ever, we would expect. But but what's so provocative about it? Because we read a word like blessed, and to be honest, we have a weird relationship with the word blessed. I don't know if you heard that word growing up. So so you hear it sometimes like as an insult, like, oh, bless your little heart. That's what you say to people that you you pity. You you hear it maybe sometimes as something that's like like sentimental, right? It it has frilly loops in the letters as you, and it doesn't have a lot of teeth. It's kind kind of soft. Or maybe you have a really negative version. You watched TV and saw some preacher rant and rave talking about what it means to be blessed. And they said that was all about money that they had and all the stuff they acquired. And that's how you knew they were blessed and they were right. And you should probably give them money to get on side of that blessing. And if you gave money, then you could get the same kind of blessing. And there's this really weird relationship with that. You could actually translate the word happy as well. But that word doesn't help us a whole lot because happy is such a strange word for us. We normally tie happiness to situations and circumstances and how I feel in the moment, right? So, so what, is, what is this word actually? Well, well, the word beatitude or blessed, we get it from the, the Latin version, right? It really does just mean like blessed or be happy. But the word, if you look in the Greek, has a deeper sense to it. It actually implies like who is to be congratulated, who, who is in a favorable position, who has the advantage? The, the blessing and the happiness, they're not just like emotions. They're not circumstantial. It is, it is a, 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 a position of the heart or a disposition of your status that is to be favored is the way you could translate it. But it's hard to translate it that way because these things just don't make a lot of sense. You go like, I don't want to be that. So if the text is actually saying this is the advantaged position, this is what is actually really exciting. These are the people who are here, hey, great news. If this is you, you are in the ace spot. When we read that, we just go, this doesn't make any sense at all. So I'll just use the word blessed and cross my fingers and hope somebody picks up on what this actually means. But Jesus intends to say, hey, good news to you. You are in the right position if you are poor in spirit. Great news. Gosh, I've got great news for you. If you are mourning, you are in an amazing spot. Oh, blessings to you who are meek. Those who are last. Oh, man, you are in the prime favored position. People should be so lucky as to be where you are. Oh, great news. Congratulations. Those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are in the spot where they show mercy, man, you are slaying it. You're killing it. You are in that ace spot. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
blessed are those who are persecuted. Hey, man, great news for you. Congratulations if people turn away from you because you follow Jesus, Jesus says. She so go like, dang. I mean, my, my list was a little bit different of the blessed life. My list was a little bit more sophisticated, you might say. It was a little more kind of modern. Maybe you're sounding like this, right? Blessed are the powerful, for they get what they want. Blessed are the beautiful, because they're desired. Blessed are the assertive, because they take matters into their own hands. Blessed are the affluent, because they can attain the good life. Blessed are those who are true to themselves, for they have thrown off the oppressive cultural norms. Blessed are those who get back in the ways that they have kind of, kind of sought after things in the culture. But blessed are those who, who can kind of twist the culture around to their own desires. Blessed are those who, who make it to retirement securely, right? Because they are the ones who are wise. Blessed are those who are up to date in all the latest trends because theirs is the cultural relevance. Blessed are the minimalists, right? Because they have freed themselves from the bondage of this material world. Blessed are those who have passive income and can retire early because they have beat the system. Blessed are those who leave a small carbon footprint. Blessed are those who don't get deceived by government overreach. Blessed are the religious and the moral because they have earned the love of God through their good works. Blessed are the conservatives. Blessed are the progressives. Blessed are those who are sexually liberated. Blessed are those who don't take risks so they can't ever fail. Blessed are the invisible because you can't be taken advantage of if you're not noticed by people. What is your list? I bet you it wasn't poor in spirit and mourning. All right, so why do I labor here? Because the opening of this sermon is to say, hey, good news to you. This is who the kingdom of God is for. So remember what's just gone on. He's been healing diseases and he's been teaching and he's welcoming the broken. They gather around him and he begins to teach Hey, who is the kingdom of God for? Who who did God come for? Who gets into the kingdom? It's not the amazing. It is the broken. It's not the accomplished. It's those who mourn, which means everyone is invited into the kingdom. It means that regardless of where you find yourself, you don't have to fix something about yourself. You don't have to either get justice or stop weeping or or get yourself improved so you stop living in shame so that God could actually welcome you. Hey, you're already in a great spot. And if you see your need for a Savior, oh, and you are the happy ones because it's easy for you to now turn to the God who actually came to rescue and Redeemed. So we might even say, like, hey, how could these actually be good news? If they are a list of things that you must do for God to love you, they're actually really oppressive. If the Beatitudes are commands of something you should aspire to so that you can come into the kingdom, it like flips righteousness around and just makes like brokenness the new up in a way that actually we could distort and not just welcome brokenness, but actually see brokenness as the most esteemed thing. Jesus isn't elevating poverty over riches. What he's saying is when you see your need, great news for you, because God has come and the kingdom of God is actually for you. So, So who is the kingdom of God for? It's for the broken and it's for the needy. This is a list of lasts, one scholar said which then welcomes all of us because there are places where all of us find ourselves in last. 
and you have a lot of places that you present and the ways that you show people and who you actually assert yourself to be that you're really confident about. But in the quiet places of your heart, you know there are spots that are broken and not what they're supposed to be. And you're trying really, really hard to prove yourself, but there are places of poverty and mourning and sadness and where you have a longing and loss and hunger. So what do you do? If the game was make yourself amazing so that God would love you, and then we just flipped it around and said, all right, so the way up is down, so just be, be as low as you could possibly be. And then those are the people who really deserve to be loved. That would be a weird kind of reverse law, right? So, so we can't be saying, hey, it's the poor that are better than the rich. It's those who are sad that are better than those who, who are having a good day. It's those who are last who are better than the first. He, I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he's saying, hey, this list of people actually makes the door wide open to everybody. Because the first four have this kind of edge to them of sadness and weakness. But, but then you move on and they actually start to feel noble, right? So, so even if these were like negative things that you had to avoid or they were like positive attributes that you should try to aspire to, the list gets a little bit confusing in that space because there's some things on there that sound horrible and there's other things that you actually admire, right? So look in verse seven, right? Blessed are the merciful. Well, you might, you might say that already. You don't, maybe you don't need Jesus for that. Hey, if somebody shows compassion, somebody has empathy. Or I've heard a million TED Talks on empathy from people that don't follow Jesus who are saying, this is a good way to treat each other. Right? So there are things that are just like helpful, right? The pure in heart, man, if you're married, you want your spouse to read that? Hey, man, say faithful to me, guard your eyes, guard your heart. Right, in that space, and you felt the pain when someone hasn't done that, right? This is a noble thing, right? So I'm comparing now noble things with what normally feel like weakness or loss just to round out the image, right? Because we walk through the text, we don't just talk about what blessed is. We talk about this framework of who can come into the kingdom. And what you see is that peacemakers come in. You see that those who are persecuted, right? So, so the poor in spirit and the persecuted, both of those come into the kingdom of heaven. The language is the same in verses 3 and verse 10, which says to us then that those who get blessings, that who the kingdom is for, is actually for everyone. Those who have tried and failed, those who are trying and they feel like they're growing, those who have a longing for God, those who didn't even know they needed God, the kingdom is available to all of those. And I think at this point, you probably would agree with me. You would say, yeah, yeah of course, like anybody who trusts Jesus, doesn't matter what your background is, what your ethnicity is, what, what your economic status is, where you come from, what you've done, anybody can come into the kingdom. But I bet you, you put like an asterisk by that, and you're like, but these guys are pretty far away. I mean, like, anybody theoretically can come, but, like, this kind of person is really, really far down the line. So on a scale of 1 to 100, if you're going to rank them, I mean, there are people you put, like, 99th and 100th, right? So, so people who have abused, people that have harmed other people that are really far down that way. And then, like, you know, Mother Teresa's, like, she's probably number one or one prime. She's right at the top there, right? So there's people that are really good. You would say anybody can get in the kingdom, but there are people that are more likely Here's what Jesus does. He flips that scale on its head. He does say that Mother Teresa can come into the kingdom. But first he starts with those that are poor and mourning and sad. He takes the disadvantaged position and he flips it. We would allow for the disadvantaged position. Jesus front loads the disadvantaged position in a provocative way to jar us into thinking, wait, maybe I've thought wrong about what the kingdom of God actually is. 
So, so again, you would say, sure, everybody can come in if they'll just trust Jesus. Who's most likely to come in, though, is the question. And now what Jesus says to us is actually those who see their need, they are more likely to come into the kingdom. In Matthew 21, Jesus will say to religious elites who are following all the rules and are the admired people of the day, he says, hey, prostitutes and tax collectors, which isn't H&R Block employees, that's people that exploit their own people and take advantage and are, are liars and cheaters and have like, put people in really negative, harmful situations for their own economic gain. That's what a tax collector was in the first century. So you think about like, who in society is at the bottom of the list. And he says, prostitutes and tax collectors are coming in before you. Not, not in place of you, right? You can still come in. But what he's doing is he's flipping it in a way to jar us into thinking, oh my gosh, the kingdom of God is so different than the kingdom of the world that I have been living by. So what's, what's that list you had? What are, what are the things that are blessed? What, who has the good life? What leads to flourishing? Is it those who have a keen sense of their brokenness and need? Is what sets you up for success and flourishing a humility that knows there's places in your life where you couldn't please God? So that his death on the cross for you becomes sweet and beautiful? Are there places in your life where you realize hey, what you've been aspiring to your whole life, that actually you could get it and it wouldn't actually satisfy? In fact, you've done that dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Blessed are those who are really successful and you've been successful and you've felt empty. Blessed are those who have people around them who approve of them and you've done that and you've felt used. Blessed are the beautiful, and you've acquired that. You've kept yourself thin. You've done all the things you're supposed to do, and now you feel really shallow. And you also feel like, man, if I don't keep this up, would people still love me? And the older I get, the more threatening that becomes. So the very thing that you were grasping on for to make yourself presentable actually now begins to fold in on itself and become dangerous. So here's the good news. Oh, hey, you are in the right spot. Happy news to you, great news to you. Congratulations if you can see there are places of brokenness and God came to love you in that place. Who is the kingdom of God for? It is for anybody who sees their need for a Savior and then turns to him. I want to talk next week about what that kingdom of God does inside of us, right? how it actually produces these things. But, but first, I want you to pair where you are with this text and hear the good news that you don't have to cover over your brokenness. You don't have to fix it yourself. You don't have to, to mend it. And God really cares. Like, hear this list right, as, as a space where God sees you. Right, Those of you who are sad, who have faced loss and are mourning, good news, God sees you. And he, he wants to comfort you. Good news for you who always feel left behind. You feel like no matter what you do, you can never catch up. Oh, God has an inheritance for you. Those who are keenly aware of the poverty of their souls, oh, God, God doesn't put you in the back. He actually front loads, and you get to come into the kingdom, not just of the world, not just getting stuff that people promised you, the kingdom actually of heaven. Those who are longing for things to be made right, they have a hunger and a thirst that's not satisfied one day that will get satisfied in the justice of God. Blessed are those who are merciful, those who actually extend grace to people who know they've been forgiven and extend that to people because you get mercy. The pure in heart, it's not for loss, it's not nothing. 
God sees in those struggles and those moments late at night when you feel like, man, if I could just click this or do this, I would feel comfort. And I could actually go to sleep in that space. He says, oh, hang on there, pure of heart. I see you. I notice you. I notice you. Those of you who are fighting to step out of an outrage culture and be peacemakers, he says, man, you, you are like my children. And when you follow me, and people don't understand it, and they call you a bigot, and they call you a hate monger, and they say that you're a fundamentalist, and they, they equate you with people that are dangerous. Hey, I see you. It's worth it. Remember what they did to me, Jesus would say to you. To follow after the one who's crucified, who's rejected, as he comes to bring good news, and to feel that acute rejection puts you in a spot where it just makes sense that this is who Jesus is, and you're following him in the kingdom, that you would be treated that same way. Who is the kingdom of God for? It's for everybody. And in a provocative way, we front load need. Again, the wealthy aren't excluded. Uh, Jesus will have an interesting dialogue with people. uh, Say, it's hard for the rich person to come into the kingdom. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle, which is a provocative image. And the disciples go, well, then who can be saved? This is crazy. Oh, man, with God, all things are possible. But he provocatively frames for you in ways that you are surprised because you thought and you lived by and you were told and you feel and you long for justifying yourself through what you do and accomplish. Good news. Kingdom of God is for those who know they have a need. I just want to start us there. I wanted to give you permission to be honest. I want you to feel welcomed into the kingdom. I know you've got stuff about your past and about your present that you would change in a heartbeat if you could. Hey, good news for those of you who feel an abiding sense of shame. Christ came to forgive and welcome. His invitation to the kingdom partnered with repentance is for you. When we think about what he's done for us, that actually stirs this love, right? I started out by saying, I think it's when the gospel takes root in our hearts and then we turn away from false gospels, false loves, and we turn to what God has called us to. And it's in that space of even like remembering the sacrifice of Jesus that that affection is stirred for us. So I want us to take communion as like the first application. And I hope we do it every single week. I hope we always land the sermon, you hearing, oh, great news. Christ died for you. Because from that place, now you can turn to trust him. To hear that Christ died for you means now you can look to him and ask him to examine your heart of where you've trusted something else and you could have application of repentance. You trust him and then you could actually look at spaces where, where you, you know things aren't the way they're supposed to be and you can ask him to actually shift you and grow you and, and help you in that space. You can make lots of application from the cross of Jesus. But I want you to see it as beautiful, which is what communion is designed to do for us. So communion is a practice for Christians. It's a reminder that this one who said you're blessed if you're persecuted and rejected went all the way to the cross and was rejected on our behalf. And he died in our place in a way that atoned for all the brokenness in our life, all the things that we had done, all the things that had been done to us, all the spaces where in our sadness and weakness we've turned to protect ourselves in that spot have sinned against God and others. He died for all of that. And he died through his broken body, which is represented in that little wafer or cracker or in the bread. And he atoned when he spilt his blood, which is represented in that little cup of juice or, or in the wine. And it's a reminder for us to taste the good news of the kingdom of God that starts with the king. The kingdom is not first ethics, although there are ethics. The kingdom is not first something that we do, although there's things that we do. The kingdom is first about the king and what he's done for us.
and turning to him in love and say, thank you for what you've done. So Christians, I'm going to invite you to take communion. Roxanne's going to play here in a moment. You just take some time where you are and you peel back a little layer and take the cracker and then peel back the juice when you're ready and just remember what Christ has done. I've said it's for Christians, so if you're in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I couldn't be more happy that you're here. I think hearing a message like this aimed at Christians, right? This is followers of Jesus, helps you actually understand what it means to follow Jesus, even if you don't yet. So if you don't yet, man, I'm so thankful you're here. You can journey with us as long as you want to. Just take this time to pray and ask God to speak to you and say, man, what do I do with my brokenness? And ask, ask him to actually speak his word to your heart. If he's real, would he reveal himself to you? That'd be a great way for you to use this time. Don't take communion, but pray and ask God to speak to you. And then followers of Jesus, do take the cup in your hand as Roxanne begins to pray. Let me just pray for us. We'll take communion. And remember, the kingdom of God is for those who realize they needed a sacrifice. Take a deep breath and celebrate the fact that he gave you that sacrifice. Let me just pray for us. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're like. Thanks for what you've taught us in a text like this, that it's people just like us who you came for. Thanks you didn't make us fix ourselves or meet you halfway. You came all the way. And God, it makes you beautiful. It makes you amazing and strong to love us in our weakness. So we say thank you. Would you now minister to us by your spirit as we take communion and then sing a little bit more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.